So pretty natural to think that maybe the increased GLP-1 is an important part of what drives the weight loss. So the way we do these experiments is we engineer a mouse in order to not have the receptor for GLP-1, right? Give it bariatric surgery, and if that's the important signal, it shouldn't respond, right? It turns out that for GLP-1, these animals respond just fine, right? <laughs> both in terms of losing weight and improving their diabetes, both happen uh, independent of GLP-1. It is, it's not necessary, right, component of what happens after surgery. Welcome to the Metagenics Institute podcast, a place where you can hear from leading experts in health and wellness, from scientists and researchers to internationally recognized clinicians. Enjoy this insightful conversation with host Nathan Rose. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Metagenics Institute podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Rose, and I'm very pleased to be joined today by Dr. Randy Seeley from the University of Michigan. Welcome, Randy. Oh, I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Um, so I reached out to you. Uh, you've, um, uh, you're an obesity researcher, so perhaps we want to look at today how the gut and potentially other organs can um, influence our body weight and our metabolism and we might revisit uh, this concept of body weight regulation in the brain, the set point. Uh, so before we dive into that, perhaps you can give us a bit of a background on your research and how you got to sort of looking at these areas. Yeah, so I'm the director of the Michigan Nutrition Obesity Research Center here at the University of Michigan. Um, I'm actually in the Department of Surgery, though I'm not a surgeon. Um, and mm -hmm. my work has focused on trying to understand um, all the elements of the basic biology of how body weight is regulated particularly with an aim towards trying to figure out, you know, what we can do with those, that information uh, to make it easier for people to lose weight. What kind of tools can we give people uh, across the spectrum from nutrition to uh, pharmacology, again, to surgery, which we'll probably talk to about some today. Uh, what tools can we put in people's hands that make it easier for them uh, to control their weight? Right. That's okay. You're in the um, Department of Surgery, uh, but more of a PhD. So how long have you been looking at this um, concept of body weight regulation? So, I mean, I think uh, I started doing this in 1997, right? Wow. So I've been at this for a while. Um, we've had a focus on bariatric surgery in particular for about the last uh, 14 years or so. Okay. So um, why is weight loss so difficult? We touched upon this in a podcast with Dr. Stephen Guinay a, a year or two ago on the, this idea of the set point in the brain. Um, just like America and Australia here in New Zealand, the rates of overweight and obesity are pretty much parallel. We're, I think, we're, you know, fighting out for number one nation, um, something we don't want. Um, and uh, yeah, weight loss is can be done, but it's very difficult to do, and more importantly, it's difficult to keep the weight off. So, what's going on um, in the brain, or what 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 is this phenomenon, and why is it occurring? Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head, right? So losing weight is one thing. That's hard. Keeping it off is really hard. And I think uh, all of our expectations about this are, are, are proven to be too high about what, how much of this we're in real control over and what we mm. can do about it uh, all by ourselves. And again, so why is that? Well, so if you're an average size male like myself, you're going to consume 900,000 calories this year. So let's imagine you want to gain one pound. Well, one pound doesn't sound like very much, right? But the pound you gained last year is with you when you gained the pound this year, right? So 
<laughs> it's cumulative, right? So this problem uh, can happen over time. And when you talk about this one pound uh, over a year, even in the United States, um, we're not actually gaining more than one pound per person per year, right? So again, it's not evenly distributed. Some people are gaining more, mm -hmm. some people are gaining less. But like, when you look as bad as the problem is, it really isn't that much more than a pound per person per year. So again, a, to gain a pound is only about 4,000 calories, right? To gain a pound of fat. So think about that, right? So uh, in order to gain a pound, I got to uh, eat 900,000 calories, right? But burn 4,000 less than that, right? So it, that's an amazingly accurate system, mm. right? If you can do that. So think about it, 4,000 calories uh, that in that pool of 900,000 is an error term of, you know, four tenths of a percent, right? So our ability to match our caloric intake to caloric expenditure in most individuals, including most individuals with obesity, right, is within this four tenths of a percent. It's even worse. Right? So if you do the math backwards, at 4,000 calories a year is 11 calories a day. Wow. I'm, su I'm surprised so we're not more of a way. Yeah. So the difference between us being a lean society and obese society comes down to 11 calories per person per day, right? A potato chip uh, per person per day. Um, and the reason I bore you with those kinds of stats is that you can now appreciate that that 11 calories a day, right? The ability for us to match our intake to expenditure, right? And therefore keep our body weight relatively constant is something that isn't easy to do consciously, right? Even if you did your darndest, right, to use the best apps to track your expenditure and your food intake, trying to get to 11, 11 calories a day of air would be extremely difficult. But your body is doing that all day, every day, right? And again, I think what's important is that that same system is there in individuals with obesity as well, right? It's not different. The issue is, what is the set point? What is it defending in terms of what it thinks the appropriate weight is? So, you know, sometimes I talk about this, like, you know, there's the um, that adipose tissue you can imagine is sort of like a bathtub, right? The, and that is it, all the excess water that accumulates in the bathtub is a function of how fast the water is coming in and how mm. fast the water is going out, right? How fast are we taking in calories? How fast are we burning them? And what's amazing, right, is that again, the, in, in essence, right, we're very close to matching the rate of the water coming in and the rate of the water going out. But in order to do that, right, you have to have a signal that tells the system how much water is in the bathtub right? And when you know how much water is in the bathtub, then in fact, you can regulate as uh, when the water's going down or when the water's going up in terms of changing both the intake and expenditure side of the equations in order to keep things constant. And that's what the set point is, right? It's the ability to be able to maintain the level of water in the bathtub at a particular place over time by adjusting the variables that, uh, that you can uh, adjust. And central to all of that is the brain. Right? You can't, we're going to talk about the gut and all this, but the brain is the critical part of being able to match your intake to expenditure over time. Fascinating. And so yeah, why is it that the, um, a person with obesity, their, their water levels are higher in their bathtub and it's keeping it that, you know, at three foot rather than two foot? Exactly. Right. So the, I think the hard part about trying to talk about this, right, is um, there's sort of a... Um, a real psychology to this, right? Which is that uh, lean people want to take credit for being lean, right? And it's very hard to do that without uh, implicitly uh, blaming individuals with obesity for the state that they're in. 
the reality is this difference between being two feet or three feet in the bathtub, right, is um, very largely about your genetics, right? And uh, so again, it's more than 50% of the variance, right, has to do with your genetics. And every time I say that, people look at me cross-eyed and say, but our genetics were the same 50 years mm -hmm. ago as they are today. And they're right. But what you're missing is what the genetics actually encode. The genetics uh, not just tell you how much water is in the bathtub, but how much water should be in the bathtub relative to the environment you live in, right? So I'll give you a super simple example and use mice to do it, right? Again, it's nice to talk about mice because we don't blame them for what happens, right? They are just responding to the biology, right? So we put mice either on a low-fat diet or a high-fat diet. The normal mouse, right, gains a lot of weight when we put them on a high-fat diet. Again, it's also got a lot of sugar in it too, right? Mm -hmm. So we can get back in the debate about fat and sugar we don't have to have right now, right? But mm -hmm. Uh, so that, games, that animal gains 50% of its uh, additional body fat compared to the animals that are on the other diet. You can take uh, another strain of mice, right, that have exactly the same environment, right? They live in the same cages. They eat exactly the same food. But they don't gain an ounce when now put on that high-fat diet, right? So the, the difference between the two animals is genetic. But you don't see that when you put them on the low-fat diet. They look the same. Mm, mm. It's only on the high-fat diet do you now see that the, uh, the extent of the role the genetics play in the response to that diet. So again, the environment is changing, but part of what it is, why this is not an evenly distributed trait, why it is that some individuals are impacted more than others is that their genetics are a component of what it is that encodes the response to the environment. And that always seems like a hard issue to get people to understand. Mm. And I think it's because, again, the issue of for a, a lean individual right, to take credit for being lean is to say, well, I control my environment, right? I don't go to the McDonald's drive-thru. I work out, whatever their hypothesis about this is. But the reality is, again, we're all relatively swimming in obesogenic water, right? And what the difference in the trait has largely to do not with just the potential differences and small differences in the water, but also to do with the genetics that we bring, right? In terms of what it is that's gonna drive individuals. And you can see that in the data, right? So as the crisis of obesity has gotten worse, what you see is that the people on the far tail, right? With the highest BMIs have gotten higher. Mm. In other words, the people most sensitive to the environment are getting pushed farther and farther down the scale, right? In terms of and that's the, and the, the point about that is the set point isn't set, right? It is a response to the environment, right? So again, we think about a set point, we dial in our, uh, our thermostat mm -hmm. 72 degrees, our house stays 72 degrees. It doesn't matter what temperature is outside, right? It's trying to be 72 degrees, but that's not how this works for us, right? Depending on the environment you're in, your system may want to be 68 degrees or maybe 76 degrees, right? And then what encodes that difference has to do with the genetics that you bring. Interesting. And just on the genetics, um, so it rarely is obesity a, a single gene defect, like there's the rare um, case of a leptin mutation. Um, but as I understand, a lot of the the genome-wide association studies have pointed to several or clusters of genes, mostly to do with the brain and the hypothalamus in obesity. Yeah, certainly uh, when you look at, when you sort of fuzz your eyes and stop looking at the individual genes, but sort of step back and look uh -huh. at the big message that comes from the GWAS, it's exactly that. The 
things that matter the most for, uh, uh, for an individual's weight are genes that are largely expressed in the brain. Um, again, hypothalamus is a part of it, but it's also some other areas of the brain as well. But it's not genes about your adipose tissue. It's not genes about your muscle and how much energy you might expend in muscle, right? Those are reasonable hypotheses. But the biggest component of what happens genetically really does have to do with how your brain perceives the environment you're in and how it decides what, in fact, is the appropriate weight for you to be given that environment. Mm. All right. Thanks for that. Um, so I wanted to talk about how some signals come in so we can get to the gut. Um, as I understand, you got the particularly the hypothalamus sort of weighs in how much energy is coming in versus how much it needs to expend, and it's getting all these feedback signals um, telling us about long range and, and acute sort of um, nutrition status. So can you just yeah describe that better, I suppose, and then we'll want to look at how the, the gut plays a role? Yeah. So you're right. The dominant signal, right, under most circumstances, is a signal that reflects how much water is in the bathtub, right? As opposed to how fast the water is coming in or how fast the water is going out. It's about Get, if I don't know how much water is in the bathtub, I can't adjust those things appropriately to get us down to matching to that potato chip a day, right? Um, and one of those signals is clearly leptin, right? Again, made in adipose tissue, goes back to the brain, tells you something about uh, what, your, what the status of the water is, how much energy right, is in the system. But what I think what we're coming to understand is the, the, that input from the adipose tissue is super important. And again, as you pointed out, right, in whether it's a pe person or a mouse, if you don't have that signal, your body weight is going to be much more elevated, right? So it's, it's clear that the signal is what matters. It's not really how much water it is. It's the signal that the water uh, brings, right, that's important. And so the question becomes, okay, so uh, what happens in the other parts of the system? What other signals are we bringing, right, that are relevant to the ability for us to control our weight? And it turns out, right, that we know that the most effective therapies we have today, right, uh, whether you're talking about pharmacology or whether you're talking about surgery, are signals that are generated in the gut, right? So analogs of those signals and or manipulation of the gut uh, surgically provides the biggest impact on an individual's weight. And that does, I will tell you that when I started this, that sort of surprised me, right? Mm. Because again, the idea, you're not fooling it about how much leptin there is, right? Or how much water is in the bathtub, right? But you're now providing other kinds of signals that turn out to be important for what the organism sees, again, as the appropriate weight within the environment that it finds itself. And um, again, there's just no doubt, right, that when you manipulate this in the right way, you get that. And I think one of the important things uh, about when we look at bariatric surgery is it's not about the physics. It's not about the mechanics of what we've done. It's about the signals, right? So it isn't about whether we make your stomach small, right? Or make it hard to absorb calories from the intestine, which is the way we usually talk about it. It's really about the fact that we're changing the nature of the signals that come from the gut. Uh, that's important. I mean, so the easiest way for me to explain that, right, is, you know, if we wired your jaw shut, would you be more hungry or less hungry? <laughs> I'd be starving. Yeah, you'd be really hungry. And what happens after bariatric surgery is that individuals eat less, lose weight, but are less hungry, right? So it isn't a mechanical thing. We just haven't made it hard to consume calories or hard to absorb them. We have changed the nature of what the 
organism looks at in terms of what's an appropriate number of calories to consume, given uh, the status that it is in terms of what it, how it views how much water is supposed to be in that bathtub. So again, it's, it's not just about um, changing uh, how much, how full you feel. It's about changing the nature of the set point, right? So individuals who get surgery, right, find themselves in losing weight relatively easily compared to where they were before because now they're working with their biology, right? Their biology believes that they should have less water in the bathtub. And so it now turns out to be much easier, right, to pay attention to the instructions that you might get about what your caloric intake should be, uh, what other activities you should be doing because, in fact, it's now consistent with the biology. Losing water before meant, again, being below that set point and engaging all these responses that make you hungrier, right, and make you even more efficient in terms of your calorie burn. Mm. All right, we'll get back into that moment. I just got one final question around these signals. Um, so, yeah, you said you started le- mid to late 90s. That's when leptin was discovered and there would have been a real boom around leptin. Um, and, yeah, I'm just curious on, like, yeah, leptin seems to be that long range, as I said, signal. You would. It sounds like you were surprised. Um, how is it the – any thoughts on how and why the gut, which typically sends acute signals, could have such a thankfully profound effect on our on our bathtub levels? Yeah, and I think – so, again, if you'd asked me at the beginning of this, right, particularly after leptin's discovery and the, you know, the notion that this must be the critical component of the set point, the, the idea, that, again, that manipulations like this of short-term signals would, wouldn't matter. And I think the, the reality, right, is that what we now come to understand, right, is that in the symphony, right, of these different organs interacting with one another, where the brain is conducting the orchestra, hmm. but different organs are actually providing important inputs into that. And the gut is probably at the top of those organs other than leptin in terms of being able to provide that input. So, yes, we think about those signals that when we eat, Right? There's some signal that tells you, okay, you've eaten enough for right now. Right? And then traditionally, our ability to manipulate those kinds of signals to produce long-term weight loss was very difficult. But part of the issue here, again, is the nature of turning those signals that are episodic into things that, in fact, are tones. Right? Mm. So again, you can change the tone of the, of the GI tract in a way that provides a signal that says, by the way, again, the set point should be lower. Right? Um, and again, it does that in the context of still having the brain know that there is a uh, that leptin is out there and the water has gone down, but now it sees it as appropriate, right? Uh, given the additional signals that are now coming from the gut ah. that aren't just about the food ingested, right? But are also about long-term issues about how the gut is interacting with all the other organs uh, to 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 make your body work. Okay. So let's have a look at this uh, part of the orchestra, the, the gut. Um, so as you mentioned, people who uh, have bariatric surgery. Um, seem to lower their set point because yes they lose weight but as you said um if it was just mechanical then they'd be extremely hungry and try and um increase their caloric intake to to get back to their set point but um they seem to yeah lose lose the sort of um appetite and even the the desire to eat some of those obesogenic foods um so yeah what's going how is that working (laughs) and that's that's what you're looking at now isn't it (laughs) yeah so i think this is uh so my PhD is actually in psychology, right? uh-huh. and and so these issues about how surgery changes behavior is super interesting to me. And so I'll I'll tell you something about what happens in the in the rodents, and then we'll talk about what happens in humans because again the rodents don't have a registered dietitian telling them what they're supposed to do, right? 
So they're just, whatever we see in them is a, is a product of the change in biology, the change in the signals that result after the surgery. And I can tell you one of the most profound things that happens in animals after surgery is that they voluntarily choose to eat calorically less dense substances. So when they have a choice to them, right, they will choose the less calorically dense. When the animal before surgery was absolutely going to choose the more calorically dense version. So in one of these, right, we can give them a low-fat diet versus a high-fat diet. And the animals actually voluntarily reduce their intake of the high-fat diet. Hmm. But they actually choose to eat more of the low-fat diet. So by any version, they're making a healthier choice. Nobody told them it was healthier, right? It's just what they think is appropriate now for their GI tract. So when you look in people, there is all these sort of profound changes that happen uh, to their uh, food choices. And again, it's complex in people, right? Because they're being told what to do. They have ideas of their own about what they're mm. supposed to do. Um, but one thing that is super clear in, uh, in, in people after surgery, right, is that their ability to detect sugar in a solution uh, gets better. Right? In other words, right. they can say there's sugar in a solution when it's at a lower concentration than it was before. Same individual, before and after surgery, all of a sudden, their tongue is a, a more sensitive uh, ability to be able to detect sugar. So many individuals after surgery, you'll hear them say, oh, I used to like that, but it's now too sweet for me. Right? So their sensory components of this are... Uh, altered after the surgery in some very profound and compelling ways. Um, uh, so I have a friend of mine whose mother got a Roux-en-Y gastric bypass, but she was actually a lean individual. She got it to treat uh, a benign mass, right? So, right. but when she woke up after the surgery, right, the next world is she didn't want to drink uh, wine or coffee anymore. And I asked her, is that because you tasted them and then it felt bad or something? She said, no, I just don't want them anymore. So again, there's this profound change that may, again, isn't always exactly the same in, in every individual, but a profound change in what it is they choose to consume and the things, in fact, that are uh, attractive to them in terms of foods in their environment. It's right. an amazing thing, right, to think about, right? And again, that shows you why it's not mechanical, right? There's nothing about making your stomach small, right, that you would expect would change your ability to perceive sugar in your environment. Well, it's like it gives you superhuman willpower or something without even trying. I think that's a fair version of it, right? Again, it, it is putting you in the context, right, where uh, you don't need to use nearly the level of willpower, right, in order to get to that healthier weight than you did before. And that's the, the secret sauce of this, right? It is changing these signals that profoundly alter the way you're interacting with food in your environment. And again, part of that is because it's lowered that set point, right? Making it, uh, making your biology work with you to get to that place rather than you having to try to overcome that biology to get there. So with um, uh, diet-induced weight loss, the, the profile seems almost the opposite. The, it's the law of diminishing returns or um, inverse of that, or whatever you want to say. Like the, the, the more you do it, then the harder it becomes and those drives um, become greater. So is there any data on people's like, I've heard people say, like, you've got to train your taste buds. And um, and there's those few exceptions who do really well on diets and they become the champions of that sort of um, that camp of diet. Um, is there any data on what happens in people with diet-induced weight loss and their preferences and, and levels of hunger and so forth? 
So it's super clear, right, that their levels of hunger go up. Um, and again, left to their own devices, right, their food choices will be poor, right? They will choose tasty, calorically dense foods, right? And that makes complete evolutionary mm. sense, mm. right? If it's available, right, the Doritos are really a good choice if you're really underweight. <laughs> yeah. Right? It's a terrible choice for your health over the long run, but it has evolutionary sense, right, that you would seek out calorically dense, uh, tasty things. But again, what's clear right after surgery is that you don't have a desire to do that. Even though you lose a lot of weight, right, you don't shift in a way, again, that would make sense, right, in terms of that if you were underweight, right? You've lost a lot of weight, but the system doesn't think you're underweight, right? Mm. Um, I'll give you the, the rat experiment that we do to try to prove this, right? So what we did is we gave rats vertical sleeve gastrectomy, right? So they lose uh, about 50% of their body fat uh, after that. Then what we do is we actually put them on a diet. Right, so we can. Uh, what's nice about rats is they're compliant with the diet. Right, <laughs> that is when we take the food away, they don't have a way to 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 cheat and uh, find uh, uh, go to the refrigerator anyway. Right, so uh, we now ask them to lose another ten uh, percent of their body weight. When we give them back their food to eat, their ad lib food, so they can eat as much as they want, mm. those animals overeat, right, and go back to where they were. Right now, again. They defend a weight, but they defend a lower weight, right? But they show you, right, that in that situation, they respond just like any animal that's underweight would, right? They're, they, they, eat, they choose the calorically dense substances, and in fact, uh, they overeat in order to get back. And let me just point this out, right? What's restrictive about that, right? We think of sleeve gastrectomy as a restrictive procedure, right? We've taken away 80% of the stomach and made your stomach smaller. And so you think, well, again, it's hard, to, it's hard to get many calories into that small space, and that's part of why it works. No, because when the animal has to, right, it can increase its intake by 50% in order to make up the ground it has lost. If you look at a, a rat that is pregnant that got surgery, right, mm -hmm. when the pregnancy uh, comes to term, she's got to feed 12 hungry mouths, right, uh, by lactation. She has to double her intake to do that a mom with a vertical sleeve gastrectomy can double her intake to keep up with the demand. Right. Right? So again, it's not about fitting things in. It is about where they see themselves relative uh, to the, uh, to the set point that has now changed as a function of surgery. Mm. So your work is um, looking at all these signals that are generated in the um, bariatric or post bariatric surgery state and sort of reverse engineering as I understand whether it's pharmacology or nutrition. Um, so from a, a 30,000 foot view, what what's the sort of, you know, cacophony of changes you see in, in a um, post-bariatric surgery state? What sort of hormones or, you know, is um, altered that may explain the, the reduction in set point? Yeah. So this is, you know, now you're talking about, for me, what's fun about this, right? <laughs> trying to, is trying to, use bariatric surgery as not just a clinical tool, right, but a research tool, right? And reverse engineering is exactly the right uh, frame for what it is we are trying to do. After all, again, when you look at in the U.S., there's about 200,000 bariatric surgeries a year. That sounds like a lot, mm. but into the pool of how many individuals with obesity that would that fit the criteria for bariatric surgery, it's less than 1% of the uh, eligible people. And Again, you can decide whether we should be using it more or less, right? You can have an opinion about that. But the, the real point is, is that 
no even if you thought we should use bariatric surgery more, we don't have enough beds, we don't have enough surgeons, right, to deal with the entire epidemic in this way, even if we thought that was appropriate. So for us, it's about taking this very effective tool and trying to figure out uh, what uh, is causing that in order to be able to decide uh, whether there are other strategies that we might be able to uh, use in order to be able to get there. And you're right. So again, for me, it's about the signals, right? It's got to be what changes in the gut, right, in order to be able to change uh, these signals. So we, we've there's so once you get from the idea that it's not mechanical to the idea that it's signals, there are natural sets of hypotheses that come from what we already knew about what happens after bariatric surgery, both in people and in animals, right? And that in some of the hormones that get secreted when we eat, right, are secreted to a much greater degree uh, after bariatric surgery. So those kinds of hypotheses are ones that are interesting to test. I can tell you that in our hands, the way we do these experiments right now is to say, okay, you think that, uh, let's talk about the gut hormone GLP-1 for a minute, right? So a uh, hormone that's secreted from the distal part of the small intestine, uh, secreted when uh, animals eat. Again, when you look at bariatric surgery, it's way higher. It is 20-fold higher, right? It's not, there's a little change, mm. right? It's a very big change. So pretty natural to think that maybe the increased GLP-1 is an important part of what drives the weight loss. So the way we do these experiments is we engineer a mouse in order to not have the receptor for GLP-1, right? Give it bariatric surgery. And if that's the important signal, it shouldn't respond, right? It turns out that for GLP-1, these animals respond just fine, right? <laughs> both in terms of losing weight and improving their diabetes, both happen uh, independent of GLP-1. It is, it's not necessary, right, component of what happens after surgery. I can tell you that was super disappointing, <laughs> right? <laughs> and, and this is part of how science goes, right? It seemed like such a logical hypothesis about this. And uh, we just couldn't find evidence, right, that that was uh, the critical driver of it. So now you start casting about, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. right? I, I refer to these similar as the sort of some wandering in the desert scientifically. Um, but one of the things we noticed at... Uh, so part of what we do is to try to compare ruin y gastric bypass and vertical sleeve gastrectomy with the idea that even the surgeries are very different in terms of what you do, that maybe the, that the clinical impacts are similar enough that maybe there's a common signal that helps you, uh, that is part of why both of them work. And that allows you to like get rid of some of the noise in the data, right? Like looking at the things that are intersect between the two. One of the things that intersects between the two is higher circulating bile acids. And so and most of your audience has some appreciation, right? Bile acids mm -hmm. are uh, made in the liver, uh, stored in your gallbladder, and are critical parts of being able to absorb lipids, right? They are surfactants that break down lipids. Without them, it is almost impossible for you to absorb uh, uh, lipids and fat from your diet. But they are, they are also hormones, right? So they actually have receptors, right? And those receptors are in different organ systems, right? So again, the definition of a hormone, right, is something you make in one place, right? It travels to another place to have an impact, right? Here, it's clear that bile acids are exactly hormones, right? That they can travel and have impacts on, on, different, uh, on different systems. So what we did was to knock out one of the receptors for bile acids and then do surgery, right? Mm. And it turns out those animals don't lose weight, and their uh, uh, glucose uh, doesn't get better, right? 
So that bile acid receptor is necessary for the benefits of vertical sleeve gastrectomy. Um, I'll note one other thing, right? So again, it, it pokes another hole in the idea that making your stomach small is the important part, mm, right? Mm. Because we made the stomach just as small in the knockouts as we did in the normal mice, right? But without bile acid receptors, it doesn't matter that the stomach is small, right? The animal still defends that same higher weight that it did before. Again, but with the bile acids, right, it will defend a lower weight. So, so, so again, bile acids are at least a piece of this signaling system, right, that are important for how it is uh, that the intestine changes in a way that drives the benefit. Um, so you, the people in your audience are probably saying, like, I don't really understand, really. Why are the bile acids in the plasma higher? Right? So again, bile acids are just secreted by the liver. Mm -hmm. They go into mm -hmm. the lumen. They're then extracted back out because they're, they're usually in great excess. Right, You have more bile acids in your intestine than you really need. So right. they're pulled back out by the small intestine and they're returned back to the liver. And it turns out that when you look at what happens after vertical sleep gastrectomy, the liver stops taking up those bile acids, so resulting in the fact that there are now more circulating bile acids. And so, again, bile acids and bile acid signals might be something that you can use to start uh, recapitulating pieces of what happens after surgery. But the important part is, how did the liver know hmm. right, that we had cut away the stomach? Right, so you know, from a scientist's point of view, it's like, I've, I've gotten one problem and now it leads me to another, right? In terms of understanding, because again, the bile acids are not being generated by the intestine, right? They are going through the intestine, but they're not being generated by the intestine. So the question becomes, how does the liver know? And I, I wish I could tell you I knew the answer to that question, but I don't, <laughs> right? Um, uh, so what I think you see here, right, is that the intestine is a very malleable organ, right? Um, but much of your audience probably knows, right? You're in the inside of your endothelial layer of your intestine entirely turns over every seven days. Mm. And your intestine has this uh, interesting dynamic, right? It is, it is both a barrier, right? And a necessary absorptive surface, meaning uh, your gut has to keep out bacteria and other toxins while still managing to absorb calories and nutrients, right? Mm. And that's a balancing act, right, that it has to do all the time. And I think the core of what happens after surgery is you've changed the nature of that balancing act, right? right. So the, the compromise between those two things is different. And the gut has to adapt. Um, after either a ruinoid gastric bypass or a vertical sleeve gastrectomy, the gastric emptying rates are very, very high. So that makes sense in the ruinoid, right? Because if you understand a ruinoid, there's no pylorus there anymore, right? So food yep. goes into the small pouch and directly into the intestine at a rapid rate. In the case of vertical sleep gastrectomy, the same thing happens, right? Even though we haven't actually touched the pylorus. Again, I won't try to bore you with why that happens. But the point is, normally your intestine does this balancing act in the background of having a stomach that protects it, right? So it, it's meeting out calories at a slow pace, and at a pace, in fact, that the intestine tells it. Right? So you have feedback signals from your intestine telling your stomach to slow down your gastric emptying. So when you start eating, not everything gets dumped, dumped mm. into your intestine, right? Your intestine starts getting stuff and says, okay, slow down, slow down, slow down, right? right? And it allows it to digest, absorb, right? And identify the nutrients it wants to take while not letting in the bad stuff, right? And again, we've altered that, uh, uh, that bargain 
a lot by the fact that things are now pouring into the intestine uncontrolled, right? So that job has to, uh, has to adapt. How does the intestine adapt? It changes almost everything, right? So it changes what bacteria live in the intestine, right? It changes the nature of the gut barrier changes as a function of this. Uh, and then all these other signals are changing, right? So the, the, this super adaptive organ, right? The only reason we can live through bariatric surgery is how adaptive it is. And it's that adaptation, right? That again, that changes the bile acids, it changes the bacteria. It's changing all these things about the function of, of the intestine that changes these signals back to the brain, right? That ultimately uh, push it into a, a version where in fact uh, it now defends a lower weight. Wow. And for me, that's super cool, right? I mean, <laughs> it has all these practical implications for us to under, try to understand things and help people. But as a biologist, right, it's just super cool, right, that the intestine Absolutely. is that involved in these things can change this much and therefore, again, change what it does. And I think part of what you're pushing the intestine to do is something very unnatural, right? It's well beyond its normal version. And that's part of why bariatric surgery works so well, right, is you're pushing it so hard that now you reveal the ability of the intestine to have even more impact on weight than you would have thought of when you just look at how it's functioning every single day. Wow. Are there any, I'm just thinking now, I hadn't heard of that concept, but it makes a lot of sense. Um, there's got to be flip sides to this, like are we? is the intestine letting in too much bacteria or you know, lipopolysaccharides or anything like that? Is there, is there a downside yeah, to it? So, <laughs> so that's the amazing part, right? So when we look in the animals, what happens there is that the intestine actually gets better at this gut barrier, right? It, it, and so the, the reason why, even though these, all that stuff is flowing in, but doesn't result in more bacteria escaping, in other uh, contaminants getting uh, more into the system, is because the barrier itself actually gets stronger. It actually, the junctions get tighter, right? Um, and you also happen to secrete all these antimicrobial peptides. So part of the barrier of your gut is not just the physical barrier, right? But it's also things that the gut secretes into the mucus to keep the bacteria at bay, right? And what we see is a huge increase in the secretion of some of these uh, antimicrobial peptides. So again, the gut is adapting to the situation that is much more difficult. And it actually, in some ways, overshoots. It actually makes a barrier that is tighter. Uh, than right. it was before as a function of what happens after surgery. Wow. So um, in the future, rather than trying to find the individual signals, the bile acids, is there potential to activate or work on that barrier to get the effects of bariatric surgery? I, I, certainly that's a hypothesis that we're spending a lot of time pursuing. Right, um, wow. And, and again, a piece of that is does have to do probably with the gut bacteria, right? So... It, your audience appreciates that there's, you have this huge amount of bacteria that are in your intestine that are super important to the way the intestine functions and have a lot of impact on the host, right? Which bacteria you have matter, right? And so we have all these people wandering around taking pre or probiotics to try to manipulate their uh, gut bacteria in a way that's beneficial. It's pretty clear, right, that bariatric surgery results in a change in which bacteria are around again, that are part of what provokes this, uh, the change in the barrier. And again, that provides opportunities, right? So can we mimic these changes in the, uh, gut bacteria or the things that they give off, right? So again, the bacteria are mm. consuming some nutrients and releasing others. And the question becomes, which is again, changing the signals inside the lumen, right? And again, part of that is what drives these changes in the barrier and these antimicrobial peptides. 
and again, so you can see the cascading set of events here, right, that occur uh, in this super adaptable organ. And for all of us, it's trying to like, okay, so where's the place I can intervene, right? That is the easiest, right, from a point of view of a human being to be able to do, right? That can have the most impact, right, in the way that surgery does without me having to cut and staple things. Yeah, yeah. Um, to the microbiome, um, makes me think of the um, analogy of the, the drunk guy looking for his car keys under the, the spotlight. Um, a lot of the, the research has been on the colonic microbiome because it's easier to test and, and potentially manipulate. But um, from what you're saying, perhaps the small intestine might be the, the area of interest where um, we need to understand better and manipulate. Um, any thoughts on that? That's our hypothesis, right? You have articulated it exceptionally well. <laughs> and, and, and so if what you think the microbiome does is, again, that it secretes all of these other nutrients, right? These uh, various metabolites. And it's the metabolites that escape out into the system that then have disparate effects on organs, right? The, the one we talk about the most, right, are short-chain fatty acids, okay? If you're thinking about that as a bulk, well, then you should be looking at the colonic bacteria because that's where the most bacteria are. So what they're doing is going to matter most to what metabolites you have secreting around. But if you think that all of the, the critical biology is happening in the small intestine, Right? It should be that the interaction between the bugs and your intestine in the small intestine should be what matters more, right? And so, again, our hypothesis right, is that um, changes in the small intestine that we see uh, 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 consistently are an increase in lactobacillus, right? Which is, again, a family of uh, different uh, gut bacteria, right? That people often take, right, as probiotics, right? So these, and lots of various probiotic things that you, uh, that are, to help your gut health, right, uh, contain various lactobacilli. We see a big increase in the abundance of these lactobacillus. And again, that's part of what provokes these antimicrobial peptides and the downstream components. And again, so what happens here, right, is all these local things, right, it's not the bacteria speaking directly, right, to other organ systems. It's that they're having changes inside the lumen, right, that then generate these other signals, right, that matter to the organ, right? So again, that, that generate different hormones and other kinds of things, right, that matter. Again, the bile acids, again, turns out, right, the bugs matter to which bile acids you have, right? Mm. So it's not just about how many bile acids, but which bile acids, and the bugs matter a lot to which bile acids you have. So the, this is this complex uh, set of uh, effect and uh, downstream effects, right, that actually result in the adaptation of the gut that over time can push the system into a better place. Um, so can you dive into the, the bile acids a bit then? Yes, so there's different types. And also, are these bile acids then going up and crossing the blood-brain barrier to affect the, the set point? What's the, how's it working there? Yeah. So so first, uh, just take a step back for a minute. Like, you know, a Roux-en-Y gastric bypass was not developed to treat individuals with obesity. Mm. Right? It was to treat ulcers. Right, the way, a way to make it so the nutrient wasn't landing on these ulcers and making them worse. It's a complete accident, right? That in fact, uh, the smart surgeons who were paying attention show noticed that by the way, the people would lose weight when they did this. So again, remember, so these the surgeries aren't designed, right, to try to do, to accomplish the goals that we're talking about. So, so again, but it becomes this tool, right, that drives these differences, right? And so again, you're right. We increase the levels of bile acids. We change the gamish, right? The relative amounts of different bile acids. 
Um, and again, those have different signaling properties. So again, where do they act? So one high, reasonable hypothesis is that they have direct actions in the brain. There is a recent set of papers uh, from a group led by Daniela Cota uh, uh, in France again, who showed right, that bile acid receptors in the hypothalamus respond to bile acids that are secreted again, during meals, again, in order to regulate food intake and body weight, right? So the notion that those kinds of bile acids are actually important for what happens after surgery is an absolutely reasonable hypothesis that we haven't been able to test as of yet. Um, again, could you be having changes in the bile acids and their act in the lumen again, right? So um, the, one of the bile acid receptors that is expressed in the, uh, in the small intestine has a bunch of downstream targets, right? Including other gut hormones, right? right. So again, it, they're, and they're not mutually exclusive, right? It could be that the important actions are partially in the intestine, right? To cause the secretion of these other gut hormones, or again, and then also to have effects on the, on the brain directly as well, right? And that, you know, part of the reason that surgery works so well is we're doing dozens of things to the intestine all at the same time, mm. right? Rather than trying to pick out a single thing and trying to hit the head perfectly, right? Which is what the usual version of medicine is. Let's find mm. out the exact thing we need to hit and let's hit it as precisely as we can. Surgery is in some ways a very blunt instrument, right? It, right? it is a very blunt way to change the system. And part of the reason it's effective is because it is doing so many things at a time. So part of the challenge of this, right, is that not every signal is going to be control all of the what happens, right? It's the gamish, it's the change of all of them, right, that actually ultimately contribute uh, to what happens in terms of uh, the profound uh, loss of body weight. Okay, so the, the bile acids might be a bit of a, a catalyst or a domino effect of a, a whole... In all sorts of different ways, yeah. yeah, yeah. And that, again, part of the fun part is this isn't... there. You don't just cross the... I'm sorry to use a football analogy uh, to an Australian, right? <laughs> but in American football, right, like in, there is no versions where you get to cross the goal line, spike the ball, and say you won, right? Like it's each each answer raises ten more questions about yeah. how it is, the system works together. And again, that's what makes it fun, right? If you're uh, curious about these things, but it can make it frustrating too because it's like which of these things is going to have therapeutic implications which which part of this actually is something that we can do in humans again to give them a tool that will make it easier for them uh, to get to a healthier weight yeah and that it's a long way from uh knowing something about the biology to being able to make it work right in a way that will actually help people uh, down the road yeah uh, but that's the game that we're in um so on that are there any other i yeah totally get the idea that there's no single magic bullet but um any other peptides or factors from the gut um, that you have done those studies where you've knocked out the receptors or that have um, shown that that also mediates the weight loss effects? Yeah, I'll give you one more version of this, which is, uh, which is interesting, right? So one of the problems after bariatric surgery is that people are at more risk for anemias, right? It's for iron-based anemias. And the way people usually explain that is um, that in the small intestine where you absorb iron, well, that stuff is, again, in, the, in a bypass, right? You're actually bypassing some of that capacity. Um, in the, uh, the case of a sleeve gastrectomy, right, at least maybe stuff is rushing by it so that you can't absorb the iron appropriately. Turns out neither of those things are true, right? So um, uh, the, 
it's clear that the biology after the surgery wants the iron levels to be lower for reasons mm. that are not entirely clear, right? It's another physiological change that happens after surgery. The, the systems that control iron uh, regulation in the intestine, right, are all centered around a transcription factor called HIF2-alpha, right? And that stands for hypoxia-induced factor, right? So it's something that's induced under low oxygen conditions. And you can imagine that if your body's under low oxygen conditions, one hypothesis your body could have is that uh, we don't have enough iron to carry oxygen around in our blood. And so what do you do? You try to get your intestine to absorb more, uh, right. uh, or absorb more iron. That system is turned on like crazy after both vertical sleeve and Ruinois. Hmm. So does that, again, so is that just about the iron or is that about some of these other signals that we're trying to generate? So what we did was we um, used a strategy where we knocked out a factor that actually is important for getting rid of HIF2-alpha and did it only in the intestine. So now we have a lot of HIF2-alpha, not because of surgery, but because of this genetic trick we have used. Those mice, right, lose a lot of weight. Hmm. Their glucoses get way better. Um, so again, in, they, and they actually secrete more gut hormones in the same way that uh, bariatric surgery does. So the, uh, a piece of what's happening here has to do with the way the system is responding in terms of iron, right, that actually drives part of the biology, right, that seems to be at least a component of what happens uh, to be able to change the set points, change the rest of the physiology. So again, uh, you know, if you're a scientist like myself, again, like I said, I got a PhD in psychology. I don't, I didn't know anything about iron. Yeah. <laughs> right. And all of a sudden this turns out to be really important for surgery. And so again, we've been trying to figure out, well, how would we exploit that? Right. What can we do inside the lumen, right. To start moving that system that would normally absorb iron and turn it into something in fact, turn it on in a way that would actually be beneficial in terms of uh, weight and diabetes. So do, do you see changes in like iron, um, whether it's hemoglobin and iron and so forth in either animals or, or um, humans after bariatric surgery? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, right? And so again, and this is one of these uh, weird things that, uh, that when, as you've been, as you do these, uh, these surgeries in these models, right, where we don't always mimic exactly what happens in humans. Humans are all told to take iron supplements after surgery, right, to prevent these issues of potentially getting anemias. Nobody gives the rodents more iron yeah. after the surgery, right? Um, and so again, we sort of stumbled into this, right, because that we could see that the animals have these lower iron because we weren't treating it, right? Again, people, we try to treat it beforehand, right? But all of a sudden, again, when you start pulling it at that thread of that biology, all of a sudden it becomes super interesting, right? That in fact, uh, what matters, right, is this biology inside the lumen, right, to be able to turn it on. And again, now how does that matter, right? Again, how does it talk to the rest of the system? I have no idea, right, in terms of what the relationship is with the bile acids, what it is to the antimicrobial peptides, and it's trying to stitch all that together to make a coherent narrative about what's happening is the is the real challenge. Okay, um, I want to turn our attention back to GLP one. You said it, um, your studies has ruled it out as a factor, but um, and you, you've published papers on on GLP one itself. And um, as I understand, the the sort of emerging blockbuster drug, the semaglutide, is a GLP one receptor agonist. So how do <laughs> how do we explain that? Yeah, so, so, there, there, so you have to look at what these drugs actually do, 
right? So one way to portray them, right, is that they're a gut hormone that gets secreted after we were, and we're going to make an analog of that gut hormone, yeah, right, and try to trick that system into doing. But the reality about what the drugs do is very little to do with what the normal biology of GLP-1 looks like, even after bariatric surgery. Why is that? When we, so one of the things, the tricks they do, right, is to make GLP-1 is a very short-acting hormone. The trick of these drugs, right, is to make them a very long-acting hormone. Right. In fact, semaglutide is only once a week dosing, right? So we've taken this thing that normally lasts two minutes in your blood and make it last for seven days, right? When you do that, the amount of GLP-1 activity that's in your blood is five times what you could get even after bariatric surgery, right? right? So yes, it's very effective, but it isn't because it's mimicking bariatric surgery per se, right? It is, in fact, again, doing something well beyond what the normal physiology would do. And again, this, I, I will tell you that um, one of the depressing things about this is you find out how much luck is actually involved in us being able to come up with these things. Um, GLP-1, when you do loss of function, right, that is, we remove it, the animal doesn't look very different, right? right. So again, how important it is in your day-to-day -day biology is that it's not as important as you might think. But when you add this stuff, right, you add lot, what is uh, can well above the physiological range, you have all these benefits, right? And you're right, semaglutide will change a lot about how we think about uh, treating obesity, because in, for, in, the, in the trial, 40% of the patients lost more than 20% of their weight. So we are now getting to places where the pharmacology right, can uh, do things that are, rival what happens after bariatric surgery. Right? So uh, it is super clear right, that that weight effect and work we've done is in the brain. Um, it may not be in the hypothalamus, though, right? Or, I mean, it would be exclusively in the hypothalamus, right? I think other brain mm. areas in the brainstem are probably involved as well. Mm. Um, and so, again, it opens up all these possibilities, right? So we spend now some of our time looking at these brainstem systems. Can we manipulate those independently in order to be able to provide weight gain rather than having to manipulate the hypothalamus in a direct manner? And so, again, all of that goes back to right, the, the issues about uh, the way the whole system is put together and that the first stopping point for many of these signals is actually in the brainstem. And so can we actually change those in ways that will change weight? And the answer is absolutely. Okay. Thanks for that. All right. Um, so now to sort of the here and now and, and real life and people are um, in, in Louisville and considering all this evidence, like how do you go about <laughs> your own, like, is it just you're thankful about your genetics uh, you know, got any advice? Is it about avoiding, you know, um, calorie-dense foods? What can people do, you know, yeah. with all this um, knowledge to date? Yeah. I mean, so the first message that I think people uh, have to understand, right, is because they're, they're not in as much control of this as they would like to be, right? doesn't mean that what they do doesn't matter at all, right? But that it, it doesn't matter nearly as much as you'd hope. Um, and again, that runs in both directions, right? Uh, that means that lean individuals are not as... Uh, in control of this as you would think. I mean, one of the things you alluded to earlier, right, again, lots of people uh, try a diet. It works for them, right? And then they become uh, proselytizers telling everybody else that they should just follow this diet. And I think the old saw is super clear, right, which is almost every diet works for somebody and no diet works for everybody. We don't have a good sense about how individuals differ in terms of how we might manipulate their environment, whether that's diet or not, that would have them give the most benefit. 
What we do know is that on average, our ability to manipulate this without doing something that helps the biology, right? The, the long-term success for most of that is relatively small. Again, there are individuals, right? Uh, one of the, I'll say one of the things that the genetic codes for is how, how much the, how susceptible you are that small changes in your life, small relative to the, the, all of the biology, might change your benefit, might help you, right? So there are some individuals for which uh, relatively small changes in their lifestyle lead to very large weight losses. Those people are pretty famous. They win weight loss contests, right? They're on commercials, mm. right? They're, they're, uh, they are super useful as examples. But in fact, most people don't fall into that category, right? For most people, it's much more limited what we can do to our weight just based on trying to uh, change our life. So the, the first thing, right, is that if the scale is the only way you determine whether you're being successful at leading a healthier lifestyle or not, I'm here to tell you that that uh, ultimately for many individuals that will fail as the only way to do this. So if it's, again, if the scale is that only thing, right, it's going to be problematic, right? So uh, the simple example of this, right, is exercise, right? Exercise is a really good idea. As a weight loss driver, it's a very poor, it has very poor efficacy. Until you get to sort of heroic levels of exercise, right? You're training for the Tour de France. It is very mm. hard to use that to drive weight loss. But is it a good idea? Yes. Does it help people who've lost weight maintain their weight loss? Yes. But as a way to just lose weight, it turns out not to be very effective. So... What are the, the, the easiest things, right, are to make sure that uh, you're sleeping well, right? It is super clear, right, that for many individuals, not getting enough sleep predisposes them uh, to weight gain. Um, in terms of your choices of foods, again, it's about eating real food, right? So, uh, again, reducing the amount of added sugar that's in your diet, reducing the number of highly processed foods, right, is always a good idea. Right? Again, for some people, that means going to a vegetarian or vegan diet, and people have success with that. For some people, that's going to relatively low-carbohydrate diets, right? and people have success with that. You have to figure out what works for you, right? And uh, the problem here is that nobody's going to know. But you have to keep in mind, again, the relative constraints, right? Mm. Um, if I said you had high blood pressure, and uh, so, doctor, what do I do? How do I... I want you to go home and lower your blood pressure. Well, uh, that's a weird sentence, right? Like, how do, how do I lower my blood pressure, right? So again, you can have, I guess you can go home and relax and do uh, meditation, right? That probably lowers your blood pressure a little bit. But the way we really treat high blood pressure right now is to use various tools, right? We use various bits of pharmacology, right? We try drug A, and then if that doesn't work, we add drug B, right? And we walk through until, in fact, we get people's blood pressure under control. I think there's a future where, in fact, we'll be able to do that uh, for individuals with obesity as well, right? We'll be able to give them different tools, both part of helping them change their lifestyle, but also other biological tools, whether, again, those are direct nutritional things, prebiotics, probiotics, again, pharmacology, right, or inter other interventions that we'll be able to give you more options about how it is that you can do this, right? And that's how we'll get more people closer to their goal, mm. right? And then we start layering them on top of each other, right? So again, uh, you add one drug to another in the same way that we would treat uh, blood pressure. Yeah. And I'll make one more point about that, which is 
one of the things that I, when I talk to individuals with obesity, and I say, you know, maybe you should think about whether one of these drugs like semaglutide is a good idea for you. They last like, well, does that mean I'll have to take it forever? And I, I hope what's apparent, right, from when I, the way I talk about this, right, if you remove the intervention, right, the set point is going to return to where it was before, mm, mm. right? Um, you, you can't just learn to be a lean person, right, by experiencing it uh, from these drugs, right? It's that, that, that's not the way this works. It doesn't work for your blood pressure either, right? Yeah. It's a, it's a biological variable that's defended, right? So when we can move it around by changing the biology, when you remove that impact on the biology, it's going to go back to where it was before. It doesn't mean you have to go back on that drug. Maybe you go on to something else. But, like, but the notion that you're going to need individuals with high blood pressure who are now have normal blood pressure with intervention are well-treated people with hypertension, right? It's not that they're not hypertensive. It's that they're well-treated. And the same thing for diabetes and the same thing for individuals with obesity, right? Um, if we can get you to goal with uh, more interventions, it's because of the interventions, right? And so we're going to need to be able to maintain some level of intervention in order to be able to help you maintain that healthier weight. Mm. I think that's, it's a, it, it is a, something that's hard for people to get over, right? Yeah, um, yeah. In terms of thinking that I got to do this for the rest of my life, yeah. uh, right? As part of it. Yeah, I think, I think when you frame it like that, like, it's like um, reversing bariatric surgery. If you undid it, it you, you, your set point would go straight back up. Yeah, you'd, go, you, you would, you'd start gaining weight. Um, and so it's, it's super obvious, right, once you step back and think of this as a physiological system, right, as one that the body is working at and defending. But it's counterintuitive because there's so much behavior that's involved in the defending, right? And that's what I think gets people uh, confused and or riled up. I, I will tell you a joke, which is I always say that uh, cancer researchers have it easy. And what I mean by that is if you're on a plane and the person next to you says, what do you do for a living? It's, well, I study how a normal cell becomes a cancer cell. The individual next to you doesn't give you their own personal hypothesis of the cell cycle, <laughs> right? <laughs> what is absolutely true for all of us is that we all have hypotheses about what controls our intake and what controls our weight. So we all have stories where, so, you know, when I moved from here to here, I lost mm. 15 pounds. Or mm. I saw Aunt Millie went on that diet and she lost 48 pounds. I mean, and so we have all these hypotheses because it involves our own personal behavior and our own personal environment in a way that we would we don't expect for any other uh, part of medicine, right? And so when you try to tell people that this is there's this biology to it, again, it's fighting all of that internal dialogue they have about what they think matters to what they eat, right? Um, and at some point, you have to sort of help people through that in order, in fact, for them to deal with the problem, again, uh, as a medical problem, not just a personal behavioral problem. Yeah, yeah, it's really well said. All right, I'll, we'll wrap up in a moment. So I'm curious to know, or do you know, what's next for you? You've become a master of the brain, then the stomach, then intestine, then liver and gallbladder. Where do you think things will unfold for you? Uh, what's super fun, right, from science, like we get to learn all this stuff, right? You get to learn about new systems all the time. The complex part, right, is how do they all interact, right? Like I said, the intestine is this incredible organ, right? That has these cascading changes that occur after surgery. Which of those are important and which of those are beneficial, right? That we can actually use in a mm. way to give more tools to people. That's just not clear. So you're one of the reasons I reached out to you is that you, you obviously 
very knowledgeable and know the, the science. Um, B, you can translate it well. But C is this, um, you know, empathy with the the, the, the patient um, who is overweight. So as a final question, um, what resources um, would you recommend people looking to follow? I know you're, you're passionate about, like, reducing the stigma of obesity as well. So as a sort of holistic final question, yeah, what, where can people turn to for, for reliable information? So um, you're right, and there's a lot of, of misinformation driven by individuals who want to sell uh, individuals trying to change their weight on a solution, right? Um, and the, again, as we've talked about the biology right here, so a lot, of that, a lot of those solutions will work for some period, right? Again, people will change their lifestyle in some way, right, in order to lose some weight for some period, only likely to gain it back. And the beauty, if you're selling them the product, is you can take credit for the weight loss and blame them for the weight gain, right? So it's the best repeat customer base in some level, right? Uh, so now you get to sell them a new problem, a, a new solution to their problem, which means that coming by reliable information can be difficult, right? So again, uh, I would uh, recommend people go to the Obesity Action Coalition uh, website. Lots of good information there, both about bias and stigma, as well as about, again, how to find physicians, right, that are... Uh, that, um, have the appropriate attitude and uh, a desire to try to treat individuals with obesity. Um, the NIDDK website for the, at the National Institute of Health has a section uh, around obesity and its therapies, also uh, that is super informative. So again, I think that's uh, those are two really good resources to start with people. Um, and uh, again, we're trying to do lots of things to make it easier to access more reliable information. Thank you. Well, I look forward to what you uncover in the future. It's been, yeah, um, I probably I've used the word fascinating. That's another synonym, but I can't think of anything else to say that's incredible. Like, yeah, it sounds like was it the Greek mythology of Medusa? You cut off one head and there's seven that pop up. But yeah, you know, it's, it's, I mean, that's a really good analogy. I think <laughs> that that fits exactly what most of my days look like. Right? We, <laughs> we think we have a handle on one thing, and all of a sudden you're like, oh my god, that means I don't understand any of these other things. Yeah. Oh, uh, one thing I'll add, whether you want to put it into the podcast or put it into the notes. So I'm a paid consultant, and we get research support from Novo Nordisk. Uh, yep. um, uh, I think that's the only company that's relevant when we, we talked about a product of theirs today. Sure, so, sure. So just, again, uh, fair to make sure that the audience knows that if they uh, wish I appreciate to that. that. Um, no problem. But, yeah, thank you for your time. It's been, yeah, enthralling, and I look forward to, yeah, whatever whatever organ and system and peptide comes up in the future, and, and maybe I can catch up with you again in the, in the future to discuss. Happy to do it anytime. This is super enjoyable. Thank you. All right, thanks. For useful links and resources, make sure you check out the show notes. The information provided in this episode is for educational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for health and medical care. Always consult a healthcare professional for medical advice.